Hello and welcome to episode four of the Perfusion Data Podcast. I'm Hendrik Nordmark. And I'm David Reinstein. So how are you doing, David? How are you doing, I should say, or good day, mate. Or <laughs> wait, no, um, am I right? Or <laughs> That's Australian. Uh, uh, would what would you like to drink that uh, Tim Hortons donut with? A. A. Yeah, there we are. I I hear you've moved to our uh, America's our hat. Up to the north. I have moved to the Americas. I am in uh, British Columbia, uh, Vancouver Island, to be more precise. Mm-hmm. And um, it's been quite a transition. Uh, I can hear some island life shooting in the background occasionally. Uh, apparently, they're, they're doing moose hunting. Um, yes, also, um, I remember going to Costco, I think it was like the first day or second day we had arrived, and all of a sudden, everything shook. I thought it was an earthquake. And, you know, I grew up with earthquakes in Mexico City, so I'm not too unfamiliar to that. But uh, the cashier then told me, it's like, no, no, that's not an earthquake. Um, it's that they're actually blowing up part of the mountain to build mountain, right? new roads, uh, build new flats. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's like, uh, it feels a little bit like being at the frontier, uh, you know, Things are still really being built yeah, are at the in the middle of nature. Yeah, um, I had a bear in my backyard, so I, I can compete slightly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's definitely. I think I probably used that anecdote on a, pr- a previous episode, though. So no, no, I don't recall that. Uh, yeah. But that's that's pretty cool. Bear. Um, and then this week just has been um, <laughs> yeah. awful. The beginning because there was this big storm that has hit the entire Pacific Northwest. Uh, 100,000 people on Vancouver Island uh, mm. lost power, including um, uh, where my wife and I live. And, um, yeah, it just got really chilly. Um, I was, like, conserving my laptop battery as much as I could. <laughs> Tried to get some work done. You got your done. priorities straight. Yeah, exactly. Yes. But, uh, yeah, otherwise, it's been, it's been pretty good. What about you? How's life in uh. Massachusetts? Oh, it's great. As I said, all the leaves have fallen and the skies are gray, but it's still, no, not gray, actually. It's a beautiful day today. The autumn here is actually really nice. I mean, compared to when I lived in England, when the sunshine comes up for about two hours here, it's, you know, it's considerable. And people really get into autumn here with pumpkins. Everything's pumpkin this and pumpkin that and Thanksgiving coming up and we had Spiced pumpkin lattes, perhaps? Oh, yeah. Spiced pumpkin everything. What did I have that was... Pumpkin oh we're pumpkin tea and uh yeah it's pretty good. Okay. I got a, a lot of cool new devices and gadgets. I got a new voice recorder. I got a giant new tuba. It's like right here, I'll show it to you. Well, you can't really show it on the podcast just a second. <laughs> no, not really. Oh wow. That is impressive. Really, really cool. Probably pop the mics, I, I'm guessing, but that's, so that's good fun. Yeah, everything's going uh, going pretty good. Great. All okay. right, so uh, today we have uh, a friend and colleague of mine, Michael Brennan. I've known for uh, a number of years. Great. He works as a research and insights um, mm-hmm. analyst, mm-hmm. Uh, but is also the data protection officer for Profusion. What we'd really like to discuss with him is all these topics around data protection and data privacy and how we get a value exchange data uh, versus pr- preserving our anonymity. Yeah, I mean, our chats, I think you'll, and you'll hear this, that he and I come from very different perspectives and ways of thinking about and analyzing issues. But yeah, without further ado, we're going to do an interview with a data protection officer. So let's go watch, you no, know, listen to that paint dry. That's mean, David. Uh, I mean it in the best way. Hello, please welcome to the Profusion Data Podcast, a colleague and friend of mine, Michael Brennan. Uh, we've actually known each other for quite some time, right, Michael? That's right, Henrik. Uh, some might say far too long, but it's a pleasure to speak to you again. Uh, <laughs> thanks very much for inviting me on. Yes. So just for context here, uh, Michael uh, has been a part of Profusion uh, for quite some time. Uh, his role has evolved uh, quite a bit over the years. But maybe before we get into any of that, how have you been doing? What have you been up to since I last saw you? 
Um, good, thanks, Henrik. Yeah, life is starting to slowly return to normal. Uh, I had the, the pleasure of a couple of face-to-face presentations uh, this week, which uh, made me feel alive again. You can only take so much uh, Zoom uh, sort of calls and everything. Uh, and the presentations were on data protection and ethics. You'll be uh, pleased to hear yourself. Uh, yeah, I'm struggling a little bit here because uh, it gets dark so early, but... Other than that, it's it's been lovely uh, being here in Canada um, and kind of adjusting to my new life. Excellent, excellent. Well, I share your pain. It's uh, by far my least favourite time of year, this sort of prelude as we run up to the shortest day of the year. So by UK standards, it's pretty dark out there uh, most of the time. It's uh, the best time of year here in Massachusetts. The leaves have all turned colours. We've got... Uh, Things like pumpkins, and I can see the the trees around, nice crunchy leaves in the woods. So, yeah, come to Massachusetts. I know what you're (laughs) complaining about. (laughs) So, Michael, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? I obviously known you for a while um, at Profusion, but uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, career before that. Sure. Uh, thanks, Henrik. Uh, yes, uh, I guess I've been working longer than I'd like to remember uh, by this stage. Um, I guess to take it back to the beginning, I am uh, slightly unusual in the world of data uh, or indeed research and insights in that I have a theology degree. Um, so I graduated back in the, the mid 90s. Um, at the time, I used to say that I had an aspiration to be a, a theocratic dictator uh, of a small island state. Um, but I realized those two words individually are really quite frightening. And when you put them together, they're <laughs> truly terrifying. So I sort of dropped that from my <laughs> from my spiel fairly early on. Uh, I obviously moved into you know, media- there's a video game called Tropico that you should maybe try out. Or you get to actually be a dictator of a small like banana republic. Don't encourage him, eh? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to move on from that phase. It's, it's not healthy. <laughs> uh, so obviously with a theology degree, the natural move was into media sales. Uh, so I spent a, a few years in sales and business development in the, the media uh, and marketing industries, including international conferences in the former Soviet Union and the like. Uh, before a trip to India, um, you know, really was the... Um, Kind of my PhD in theology was spending uh, three months in India backpacking and actually wow. seeing how uh, various religions were lived in reality as opposed to sort of through the textbook. Um, I actually moved uh, properly into the, the marketing field in at the turn of the millennium and had the great privilege really of working for the regional newspaper industry here in the UK at the Newspaper Society. Um, and really from day one there, I took on uh, responsibility for some of their research projects, uh, which were really rich because um, if you know anything about local newspapers, then it's, it's all about the representation of the local community, pride in your area, in your locality. Uh, so therefore, our research was really drawn towards, you know, pulling that out, teasing out the importance of local identity, local news and information. Um, and, you know, many's the time I've looked back on that uh, period of uh, media history very fondly. I, I think it's fair to say the country is um, less well off as a result of the uh, evisceration of the, the sort of local media. And actually, I guess I caught the research bug pretty early on in that um, engagement with the Newspaper Society. Uh, the first big project that I worked on um, was around the renaissance of regional nations. And we probably yeah. probably the single most powerful uh, takeaway uh, from a research project, single most powerful insights uh, came from that project, uh, which, as I say, was all about local life. And we came out with this fantastic finding that over 90 percent of the typical person's life was lived within a 14 mile radius of their home. That's incredible. And obviously, from a marketing and advertising point of view, that was really dialing up the, the crucial importance of having a presence in that local space. Uh, it's one thing having a great national or global brand, but how do you then um, you know, deliver at the point of purchase, if you like, the point of engagement where the action happens? Uh, that that statistic continues to to baffle, bemuse, surprise, um, and challenge people really. Uh, and it's one of the issues, I guess, with the marketing industry. So many of us are much more nomadic uh, than the typical uh, sort of citizen or consumer. 
um, and it's really getting people to understand how geographically immobile the overwhelming majority of people are. Um, and, you know, having seen a, a piece of research, quantitative and qualitative, you know, draw out such a, a powerful insight, visualizing that and bringing that to life, I guess I kind of got the book. Uh, you know, really mm. under, understood the power of research. Since then, um, you know, I've moved on from uh, regional local newspapers, very sideways move into the outdoor industry or the out of home media industry. Uh, Out, so I, outdoor industry? What's, what do you mean the outdoor industry? Well, I, I was correcting myself there, David. Sorry, it's, sorry. It, it should be called the out of home media industry. Um, so the, the classic, uh, medium would be, a, a poster site uh, on the side of a motorway or a motorway junction or a major road into Love those, uh, yeah. a city centre. And then there's multiple formats these days. You'll appreciate there's advertising opportunities within supermarkets, within bars, within gyms. There's a combination of uh, paper and paste uh, probably barely exists these days. It's very much a, a digital mm-hmm. medium, a real-time medium these days. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, um, and, and working against the, the local, the trend towards local, you know, or if it's even a trend, maybe it's a continuity, is uh, we're very much geographically dispersed in terms of whom, you know, the communities we relate to and, and, work, and work with. Even in a very small town, you'll be playing video games with, with someone halfway around the world and in some crazy YouTube group with, with different from yourself people in, in some cases, or at least geographically distinct from yourself. But yeah, I think, yeah. I think we're at a really interesting uh, sort of point there. You're absolutely right yeah. that people can be very much global citizens, globally connected, building their, you know, communities of interest, whether that's gaming, whether that's academics like yourselves. Um, but the simple fact is that physically we are rooted in a particular space uh, and that has a, a huge, Im- a huge impact on our mm. uh, sort of attitudes, behaviours, uh, our thinking uh, and indeed, you know, our opportunity to realise our sort of ambitions and our hopes and our potential, I guess. That's wonderful. So a, a long, a long time in, in media. So there was regional newspapers, there was out of home media, uh, moved on to the agency side then before then taking a, a, another a sort of move away, I guess, from uh, media and marketing and, and, and starting to work in, uh, futures and scenario planning, um, social trends. I really benefited from working with, um, a real leader in the statistical space in Michael Wilmot, um, mm. an excellent qualitative researcher as well as an, as well as an econometrician. And we worked on things like the global foresight study, which linked into the world values survey, um, which was a really That's enjoyable well sort of, uh, really enjoyable sort of three year period there. And then I washed up on the shores of profusion and entered the brave new world of data as I realized that uh, the world was moving on uh, and there was a, there was a need to uh, get involved, I guess, in, in, in where in the direction of travel. Uh, and I also had a real enthusiasm and still do for uh, bringing those two worlds together, the sort of um, the, the data world and the more traditional uh, world of research and insights. And I, I think there's still a need to, to make those two sides of the equation uh, work more effectively together to to deliver the, the richest possible sort of insights. But wasn't the work that you were doing also somewhat data-driven? I mean, an econometrician is clearly uh, using data and in the world of advertising, don't don't they still try to collect certain sorts of data on responses to have some idea of how well this billboard is that causes you to veer off the road? <laughs> You're absolutely right. Um, you know, da- data is everywhere, of course. Um, you know, I guess it's a question of sort of mindset and language in that we didn't necessarily see ourselves as, as data professionals. Um, indeed, we were doing pretty sophisticated sort of statistical analyses, as you allude to. Um, and actually, that was fascinating when I first arrived at Profusion was um, the, the two worlds were almost um, seen as, as in isolation and, and there was a limited understanding of I've often said that data science sort of stands on the shoulders of giants you know some of the pioneers in the um, statistical sort of space a lot of the work as you rightly say that's done in media and marketing over the last sort of 50 or 60 years has has fed in hugely into into uh, the applications of data science uh, within the same realm um, I know Henrik you, you'll probably recall uh, some of my frustrations uh, with some of the uh, the younger data scientists in our team you know limited experience you know relatively fresh out of university um, and I, I was disappointed if I'm honest that there was a lack of appreciation of that heritage and, and you know what they were building upon and 
so I guess when I talk about data, I'm thinking more about IT focus sort of approach, digital uh, sort of focus, uh, as opposed to uh, survey data and, and other source, sources. It's interesting uh, you reference that because I, I do remember some of those early days at, at Profusion and even from some of our management at the time, I kind of got the feeling that they really had this sense of like, okay, yeah, there's like chronometrics and all this kind of like traditional research stuff. And then there's this new thing called data science. And I couldn't really comprehend in my own head what distinction they were like actually trying to make. And I felt that the lines between those two things were much more blurred. And mm. uh, maybe it was just like a, a difference on emphasis and a difference on um, yeah, and some of the types of data that you might be looking at. Well, that's why data literacy is yeah. so important. I mean, if you don't have an idea of data literacy, you might be reacting to the clothes people wear and the words they use and think, this is a whole new thing, unlike these old crusty things before, <laughs> right? So, right, because I mean, it's it's totally, to me, that that's almost a negative world. I mean, obviously, for instance, things like machine learning and more more powerful processing and prediction are, there's more emphasis on that, perhaps, and with with digital uh, online purchasing and behavior, there's maybe richer data coming out, but it's the same thing, right? It's not it's not new. No, absolutely. And um, you know, there's different types of data, and they work to complement each other and enrich each other. Um, you know, it also speaks to that uh, very simplistic and lazy and wrong idea that there's such a thing as objective data. Um, so people would often be incredibly dismissive of uh, primary consumer research, whether that's quantitative or qualitative. Oh, you can't believe a word they say, but actually, you know, it's about teasing out insights from claimed mm. behaviour. And it's mm -hmm. wonderful when you can start to map um, how people choose to present themselves in terms of their responses to surveys, their interactions in focus groups. And then if you can map that to their actual behavior as observed through data points and uh, digital sort of interactions, then you get a much more interesting and nuanced picture. And I guess that's really central to our discussion today in terms of uh, the role of privacy. Um, you know, it's one thing mm -hmm. for people to say it's incredibly important to me. And then you look at their actual digital behaviors and you're mm, maybe there's something Correct. of a disconnect. Yes. There, so. And also, if, if we look at the recent surveys or this recent paper based on a survey by Vinegar and, and Sunstein, there's some sense that the survey responses are not perhaps not quite pinning down what we want just yet it may need a little bit you know more art or more more developments until we can figure out what it is people mean in this new space david you mentioned this paper by sunstein and vinegar uh yeah tell us what that's about well there's a paper there's a short communication published in the journal of consumer policy called how much is data privacy worth a preliminary investigation by A.J. Vinegar and Cass Sunstein. Cass Sunstein is famous for writing books about nudge, popular books about nudge, the idea of nudging. And um, yeah, as I as I mentioned on the in the interview, they did these surveys asking people what their willingness to accept to to gain or lose privacy in these different contexts, Facebook, etc., to claim their data back. How much are people willing to pay? And uh, yeah, you you can have a have a look at it. I I think that their their main conclusion is just that these measures are just highly unreliable. Uh, about you know maybe this is not the best way of getting at what people really how much people really value these things. But you know, I, one striking finding was is just, was just that the median consumer was willing to pay to pay only five dollars a month to maintain data privacy or sixty dollars per year. Which makes, you know, you could, if you believe it, if you believe that it's not this misunderstanding, biases, things called endowment effects, then you could say that would make you think that this is another data point suggesting that, that people don't care that much about privacy in a meaningful sense. Hmm. Fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think there's uh, more and more momentum and interest in how we um, uh, leverage sort of qualitative research, by which I mean more uh, discursive sort of uh, conversations uh, with consumers, typically the sort of focus group with eight or 10 people around a table discussing a particular sort of issue. Yeah. 
um you know it's a skilled researcher is able to you know to get deeper and to elicit much more insight into people's motivations and drivers etc in a qualitative environment than you can ever achieve no matter how skillfully constructed your survey it's incredibly hard to make a survey uh, reveal um you know sort of hidden depths and these are depths that are usually hidden to the individual themselves you know and I think that's part of our appetite for privacy because we don't understand ourselves. We're very reluctant <laughs> uh, to be exposed to someone else's um, understanding. Well, should should we should that we use that as a segue to discuss this issue of, of privacy? And and the sort of thing I wanted to to lead with um, before we sort of move into the the agenda that we have, which is um, should people be worried about their online privacy? What are the risks that they really face other than a sort of feeling violated thing? But what, what exact harm can come to them? And I, and I, I know I, I sent over a list of, of four things that I thought maybe characterizes the, the main types of harm that can come to them. But obviously this is your area of expertise, but I just want to bounce that off of you. So the first, I, I characterized it as, uh, firstly, my identity could be stolen by a third party. I share my information with you, untrusted retailer. You let it leak out. Someone steals my identity, steals my money, commits crimes with my stuff, you know, messes me up. A second one was it could just be that something embarrassing about or something that I perceive as embarrassing about me leaks out on the internet, on social media. People know I visited certain sites, uh, posted certain comments, dot, dot, dot. A third thing is that I might be worried about government getting this information and using it against me. Obviously, that's that's particularly important in countries with repressive governments. But even in the Netherlands, for instance, there was this case where the government had been accusing a lot of people of fraudulently claiming benefits based on this inferences they made, and and that that got people in trouble. And then maybe the maybe the fourth is 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 the idea of algorithmic discrimination, which ties in is sort of related to the idea that information about me might leak out to or might be shared or sold to these merchants. And they might use that to deny me insurance policies, charge me more, see me as a greater risk. So do you think that covers the major risks? What am I missing there? Um, yes, I think you are covering uh, the major risks. Just to track back uh, just partially where you said, should people be concerned yeah. about their privacy? Yes, I think it is incumbent on us all to um, take a degree of responsibility uh, for uh, the data uh, that we sort of put out there. Um, we'll all have different sort of starting points, but it's effectively a sort of hygiene factor really today to try and uh, protect your personal data. Why? Why is that important? Uh, well, for some of the reasons that you list. I mean, the, the number one concern that, that people have is of their data uh of data hacks, of data then being misused. They're particularly concerned about financial consequences and identity theft. Um, there's a, a real um, dislike and fear um, of data being sold without their knowledge. Uh, so this this idea that essential attributes of yours are disappearing into the ether to, to, to malicious or other actors, that you have no control over that. And I guess most importantly, you have no control over the interpretation of that data. Uh, we all know data is an abstraction. Um, you mentioned that Dutch case where, you know, some of the inferences drawn from the data uh, are become quite revealing, but they are just inferences. They're, they're sort of guesses based on data points. Um, you know, human life is messy and complex. Uh, you might see, uh, you know, one and two and, and make four uh, where there's a much more complex story. Um, I think a lot of it for people comes down to this loss of control uh, and the re a real fear of a loss of control, a loss of choice uh, and a real awareness of this sort of power imbalance, you know, in the digital economy. I think that's what unsettles people. They feel they're being exploited in some way. Um, I think it's a it's quite a febrile mix of um drivers of anxiety i think um so following up on that i mean there does seem to be a fundamental tension between on the one hand consumers not wanting all of this being revealed about themselves and them also wanting a seamless experience customer journey very personalized recommendations uh, just having a world where we're getting fed like the most relevant ads that actually interest us but obviously that comes with a cost and do you think that the public is really aware of that value exchange uh, or do they just kind of want to have their 
cake and eat it too. Well, I mean, we all want to have our cake and to eat it too, don't we? We all want to benefit from uh, robust uh, data protection and secure personal privacy and have the most amazing, uh, personally relevant and targeted and priced uh, sort of services possible. That's, you know, kind of the holy grail, isn't it? I do wonder, I mean, it is interesting in so many surveys that people emphasise the importance of personalisation and companies meeting them on their terms and, and talking to them, um, you know, according to what's important to them. And it, and it feels like this is what we've been told for, for, for decades now, that, you know, personalisation is everything, that speed is everything, that convenience is everything, that we're all incredibly busy people. We haven't got a moment to pause for thought. We must race to the checkout as quickly as possible. We must not be given time to actually think about anything. Uh, you know, we've all been bought into this agenda of acceleration and and removing sort of time for, for, for thought or reflection, etc. So I think there's a sense people are really caught up up in that and and I think we all like the idea of, our, of ourselves as being incredibly busy um, and things must be targeted to us for us to fit it in and frankly you know what are people busy with these days you know a huge amount of it is social media and um, and streaming video content uh, so I, I find it a little bit frustrating uh, sometimes when uh, yeah everyone says I want personalization I want this I want this massive convenience um, and I'm not entirely sure that is the reality of people's actual behavior i mean so are people hypocrites is that is that what you're and you're not saying i didn't say you didn't say hypocrites but <laughs> are people just hypocrites you know we like to complain and we want the benefits of 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 these technologies and this this data sharing uh, no, people aren't hypocrites because I think we alluded to the fact earlier that, um, you know, we're not always uh, self-aware. We don't always understand our own sort of disconnect, if you like. There's a sort of cognitive dissonance, isn't there, in terms of what you say in one space and how you behave in another. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, there is... Kind of a fan, sounds like a fancy way of saying hypocritical hypocrisy. Less negative <laughs> if I say cognitive dissonance, right? <laughs> I'd say people are people are absolutely inconsistent, mad, maddeningly and infuriatingly so. Uh, you know, businesses know that as much as anyone. You know, uh, they'll respond to, to to what they've been told by consumers, and then consumers guess what? They don't buy into it. Um, so yeah, people are maddeningly uh, sort of inconsistent, infuriatingly uh, confusing. Uh, to themselves and to others and that's part of the reason why we want to preserve our privacy just sorry just thinking a little bit further about that point of whether people are uh hypocritical or inconsistent it's quite an intriguing sort of idea and it's just come to mind that obviously there is this concept out there and it's been out there for 20 years of this sort of privacy par paradox you know we say one thing about the importance of data protection and personal privacy uh and then our behaviors the, what we share on social media how we click through these days cookie notices etc is the diametric opposite of our claimed priorities and and sort of attitudes mm. uh that's been around since as i say I think it was um, 2001 it was first formally uh, sort of cited in the context of supermarket loyalty schemes interestingly um, you know people were pushing back against the idea of the retailers having uh, you know granular analysis of what they're buying every week and Henrik you'll remember the, the great insights that were gleaned from supermarket loyalty cards and we won't yes. repeat them here again but what, oh. I, what I thought was really interesting was the rebuttal of that uh, suggestion of a privacy paradox because that is essentially saying the same as you said david that people are relatively uh, hypocritical uh, in terms of their particularly their online behaviors these days uh, professor daniel solov i don't know if you've come across from george washington university uh, oh that's where i went to undergraduate yeah, there you go. Anyways. He seemed to be seemed to be one of the leading thinkers in this space and wrote a, a really interesting uh, sort of uh, essay in response to this idea of a privacy paradox uh, by saying it's an absolute myth. It's an illusion, the suggestion that there's a privacy paradox or that people are uh, hypocritical in any way uh, in his in his uh, reading of the situation. Um, it's absolutely right and fair and reasonable that people should state their uh, preferences for data protection and personal privacy. Um, and it's equally uh, reasonable uh, that in the face of what feels insurmountable uh, sort of barriers, endless uh, hoops mm. that they have to leap through to achieve any degree of privacy management, that they throw their arms in the air uh, and crack on with their behavior. So he sees it as a perfectly rational response grounded in what he calls privacy cynicism, i.e. you do not believe that the actions that you take will have a significant 
effect on the protection okay. of your personal data. Perhaps a collective action problem or a desire for collective action or a desire for new regulations or new ways for the world to work that they, my, I myself don't feel that I can make any difference now. Henrik, go ahead. So it also sounds like you're implying there that maybe uh, consumers actually have a rather sophisticated understanding of this value exchange between privacy and, and the services they get. I mean, it's just that they want more choice and control over these things. Is that right? I think they. Um, I think the argument is that they have a very realistic uh, understanding of the limits of their control that they can exercise within the current uh, sort of paradigm, and therefore it is not a is a rational calculation that for the time it would take to deliver incredibly limited uh, protection of their data, it's simply not worthwhile. And that's underwritten by their perception of the power imbalance be behind them as individuals. So, sorry, David, I know you're probably waiting to jump in, but it, the, the, the punchline, if you like, is that so much of um, global data protection regulation is predicated on consumer rights, if you like, or the individual's responsibility to exercise their rights. Professor mm. Solov completely rightly, in my opinion, turns it entirely around and the emphasis and the onus shouldn't be on the individual to actively have to pursue their rights in the face of in unintelligible privacy notices, legalese, etc., etc. Uh, the responsibility needs to be on um, the, the, the commercial companies and organisations and the architecture needs to be uh, put in place. So the onus is on the companies, not the individual. Sorry. I'd like to, I want to put this in context of the UK Consumer Survey and this survey done uh, by you know by the, these authors Winnegar and and Sunstein these academics and I, I just I've been looking over this survey a little bit that that they did and they found they asked questions like the following okay it is known that online platforms Facebook Google other digital marketers collect user personal data for what amount in U.S. dollars would you be willing to allow all these entities to access your personal data. So they asked point blank, right? What would you be willing to pay to avoid it? Or what would you be willing to pay to allow it? What would you be willing to pay to avoid it except to allow it? Right? And what they, and what they found was that, well, what they report is that the median consumer is willing to pay just five US dollars per month to maintain data privacy. But on the other hand, they'd be, they would demand $80 per month to allow access to personal data. So it's unclear which of those numbers is correct, but if it's the lower number, you know, so $60 per year, they're willing to, to sell their privacy birthright for that little mess of pottage over there. I mean, could that, could you, could not, couldn't I make the case that, well, that should be getting around this collective action problem. I wish the world were different problem, uh, that, that Soloff seems to be alluding to because you're asking them point blank how much you'd be willing to accept or pay. Yeah, which is um, it's a difficult question for, for people to answer, isn't it, I guess? Uh, there was a similar piece of research from the Tech Policy Institute uh, last year. Um, their research covered six markets, um, and they contrasted exactly that scenario, that our willingness to accept, um, you know, what would it take for us to share financial information, for example, uh, was something approaching $20 per calendar month. So as you say, shy of $250 a year to share your financial data. It's not nothing. Um, the next step down was fingerprint or biometric data, um, and that was maybe ten or twelve dollars a month. So not vast amounts of money, um, but I guess the, the important psychological thing there is that there's there's higher value on giving something up uh, than there is actually purchasing protection, if you like. So the people are less willing to think of a large number uh, to buy additional yeah. protection as opposed to loss aversion. Referred yeah. To. Yeah. yeah, and loss aversion, I suppose. Yeah. I guess just to make this a little bit more concrete, uh, obviously we've seen the rise of things like uh, Netflix and uh, like a paid YouTube uh, channel. Um, which is perhaps a, a much cleaner way of making that value exchange obvious to people. Like, okay, I, I'm no longer getting all the, these advertisements, but instead I, I'm just handing over cash to you every month. But I, wait, but I think it's imp important to just moderate that a little bit because when I pay for YouTube live, I'm not buying privacy. I'm just buying a lack of ads, right? When I pay for YouTube, whatever it's called, the big YouTube thing, right? 
So yeah. are there, what, what I, I think people are willing to pay for lack of ads, but are there cases in which people have been willing to pay for privacy specifically? Do we have specifically. any cases like that? Not any significant cases to my knowledge. Um, I mean, what you see is in, and I've seen recently in some of the uh, independent survey work I've done, that as many as 50% of, of young people claim they are definitely willing to pay more for products or services that protects their data and personal privacy. There's almost no evidence that that is actually taking place in the marketplace. In fact, if you think about a free uh, browser like DuckDuckGo, uh, yes. with its absolute fundamental promise of not sharing data, of not exploiting your data, only using your data for to facilitate your search, etc. Uh, loads of you know research and usage suggesting that it delivers a pretty good search experience, probably not quite as good as Google as you might expect, but more than sufficient for the everyday user. The uptake is negligible. Um, oh, yeah. You know, it's it's a drop in the ocean, albeit slowly growing. Um, I must admit, my New Year's resolution, personally, uh, is to is to make the move. Um, and if someone, it, you know, and I would consider myself relatively aware of this sort of space, relatively aware of. Uh, the sheer power of Google. But there's something that's held me back to this point. You know, there's a sense of, will I be missing out on the very, very best? You know, you know, Google will deliver the best search engine. Um, so there's a fear factor as well that you'll you'll be losing a loss of service. Another example along those lines is with uh, WhatsApp that changed some of its uh, terms and conditions versus, I think, Signal, which yeah. uh, a lot of people have been moving towards in order to maintain some of that data privacy. And yet we seem to see the same problem that perhaps because of network effects, people are unwilling to migrate from WhatsApp to Signal because like, well, all of my friends are still on WhatsApp. Uh, all of my conversations are happening here. Yeah, it's a flipping um, pain, I'll tell you what. <laughs> yes, it is. Eight different messaging apps you got to keep track of now. Eh? I know. I think UK politicians have been quite keen to move on to Signal. Uh, <laughs> oh, tell us about that. No, I think uh, there's been quite a bit of um, interest in uh, government by WhatsApp uh, recently and, you know, the principle of uh, maintaining records of all government uh, sort of interactions and conversations is being ridden over sort of fairly roughshod, if you like, um, you know, disappearing messages, untraceable messages, no records being kept. You'll probably have had a, a sniff even from Massachusetts of uh, cronyism and corruption in the sort of UK parliament and around the pandemic response, etc. So accountability is really important. And it's interesting that, yeah, there's um, documented numbers of UK parliamentarians and politicians moving on to things like Signal, um, which is to the detriment of the transparency that we need <laughs> uh, to hold governments to account, uh, which is another layer of the sort of issue. I think it was David Brin who said, you know, we always want more transparency for everyone else and uh, more privacy for ourselves. Uh, and that's always been true. <laughs> Speaking about transparency and perhaps also trust, um, I know famously this genetics company called 23andMe sold uh, DNA data of 5 million customers to GlaxoSmithKline. And apparently from like a strictly legal perspective, this was uh, justified uh, because in the terms and conditions, it said something along the lines of like, well, we might use your data for scientific purposes, they never really made it explicit that that data might actually be sold to a pharmaceutical company or a medical company. Uh, does that seem like something we should all be more cognizant about, be debating more? Um, should we have laws that prevent those kinds of arrangements from happening? Hang on a minute. I, I believe we do have a law <laughs> uh, against those sorts of arrangements. Um uh, one that everyone is warm to in terms of GDPR. That type of arrangement to me is a absolute textbook example of the 
corrosive uh, sort of impact of these types of behaviours, as you rightly say, legalistically and in the fine print of their privacy notice, it was probably there, you know, if you had pursued it to page 89, subclause 4, paragraph 3, you may well have spotted that intention to share data with commercial partners. Simple fact is 99.9% of people will not go through that process, you know. True. Uh, that's, a, that's a rational response to being bamboozled by the most expensive legalese you can see. Mm. But the corrosive effect is that sort of lack of confidence then, that lack of trust has a huge impact. And that was one of the stated drivers of GDPR in the very first instance was uh, a concern that people were losing confidence and trust in the digital economy. That would have an effect on the, on the real economy. Uh, and actually, we're seeing that play out now in China where they've brought in their equivalent of the uh, GDPR, I think it's the PLIP that went live on the 1st of November. And that's in, I mean, we can speculate as to some of the overarching drivers of that, but one of the uh, drivers there is consumer uh, frustration uh, with the behavior of their tech sector. But I mean, China is a different story, obviously, that that's almost a malicious actor clearly working against the people. But <laughs> uh, I mean, in some cases, um, but were the people harmed at all by GlaxoSmithKline's use of their data? And, you know, I mean, you could argue that maybe they should have been compensated for it, but were, did that hurt them in any way? Did GlaxoSmithKline's use of their data cause any harm to society, you know, through the use of the data? And I mean, to me, this almost feels like related to, and with your theology background, you probably have a better concept of this than me, but you remember there's, maybe it wasn't big in England, but the site Jenny or Genie, that was mapping the genealogy, and they wanted to share your genealogies. But one of the groups I was told behind this effort was the um, Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, and they were using it. I didn't follow the details, but it was something like they wanted to trace people to baptize them to figure out who was going to be saved or how to, how to help them be saved. Now, me sharing my data with that, that the Mormon Church doesn't really harm me in any way, right? Isn't this kind of the same thing that it's just people were squicked out, but there really was no harm? Well, it's interesting. I mean, uh, you make an assumption that it hasn't caused any harm. Um, it was a question, really. I could take another Chinese uh, sort of quote and say it's too early to tell uh, in relation to <laughs> the revolution. Um, what yeah, harm so we could cause we, yeah. Well, that data could be used um, badly. You know, it could be discriminating against people. You could be excluding people from drug development processes. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm speculating on that. Uh, the point is that did you choose to share your data with GlaxoSmithKline? Did you choose to share? I mean, this is it. This is your data. And it comes down to the ownership of the data, doesn't it? Well, when I walk down the street, people see me. People know how high I am, how tall I am, right? And how high I am, maybe. Then, you know, I'm in a way, I'm sharing data with those people. You know what I mean? Isn't this just me walking around in public doing my thing and people are observing me? Uh, you could argue that, yeah. I mean, I guess... Um, you know, the, the very idea of privacy is changeable. You know, I, I struggle a little bit with an absolute right to privacy or privacy as a human right when it's presented as a, you know, a grand overarching um, principle. When I think, Henrik, we've reflected in the past of the, the contingent nature of privacy. One of my favourite reference points being uh, what was called the great rebuilding in the in Britain at the end of the 15th and into the 16th century. And effectively, every household got a chimney and windows. Uh, but the chimney was the critical feature because that meant for the very first time, uh, people didn't have to huddle around the single hearth and sleep and eat and live in the same room. All of a sudden, they had the opportunity to have their own bedrooms with built-in heating. And lo, the notion of privacy was born. Um, um, you know, I have a teenage mm. lad in my household and he's very acutely aware of his right to privacy within our household. You know, another tipping point was the, uh, the Polaroid camera when that was invented, uh, within 18 months, I think in the UK and the USA, privacy legislation was published, the right to be left alone, shift away from the paparazzi. And we're now going through a, a phase still of working out what privacy means in, in a digital society or in a hybrid society. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's certainly truth in what you say, David. Um, but we're working out, uh, the parameters of our privacy and we're, um, evolving, I guess, still legislation that sort of speaks to that. 
Um, but the it's concern is it, it's an instinctive fear, isn't it, of loss of privacy? There's something about privacy that's so central to our sense of self and our personhood and our space to evolve as human beings. You know, you, you talked about the embarrassment factor if, you know, tweets from 20 years ago get unearthed. But, you know, that's more than the embarrassment factor. That's giving us that's a lot of the privacy that was needed to mature and to learn and to evolve you know in days gone past i'm absolutely certain i said some absolutely ludicrous things in my teens mm-hmm. um, you can now on, get cancelled that's true now that's an issue too but they're not on digital media they're not uh, there to be dug out well you, you mentioned china um the new chinese uh, comprehensive data protection legislation i think what did you call it the ppi was it ppic the IPL, I think. Yeah. How is this different or similar to the data protection in the UK, Europe, GDPR? Who is being protected from whom? What What's your take on that? Um, I haven't, to be quite honest, I haven't got into the details of um, the Chinese um, regulations, reading the commentary around them uh, in keeping with lots of other jurisdictions around the world. Uh, the broad principles are very similar uh, to the EU's GDPR or indeed the UK Data Protection mm-hmm. Act. Um, so the, the hierarchy of data controller, data processor, data subject, kind of ironic if the Chinese are calling them data yeah. subjects. Um so the legal bases for data processing are very similar, albeit a longer list. Um, the uh, parameters or derogations given to central government are greater, as you might expect. Um, yeah. It's very much focused on uh, the private sector and the consumer as opposed to the state and the citizen. Don't they want the private sector to be collecting data that they can harvest in in China? That's That's the impression the news gives us anyways. Yeah, and I guess China is, um, you know, for many people, a harbinger of what's to come in terms of um, that sort of partnership between the private and the public and uh, developing this surveillance sort of architecture, the social credit system, etc. I think for many people, that's the realisation of, or that's their fear, that's what they see sort of coming through uh, across the world potentially in the future. Uh, I think part of this is that um, the Communist Party itself is on a mission to rein in the tech sector. You know, there's been lots of things going on, um, in, including, you know, Jack Ma's sort of disappearance, pulling the plug on the ant flotation. Uh, I thought really interesting their move to restrict uh, gaming time to one hour an evening uh, for people. Yes. So there's some really interesting mm-hmm. and you might say populist uh, sort of activity sort of going on. That feels like a very populist response to, uh, you know, public anxiety around the impact of too much gaming. I'd be amazed to <laughs> imagine if that was introduced uh, in the UK or elsewhere. I don't think uh, it could be. No, exactly. Um, but it feels like a smart political move um, in the sense that they're responding to consumer concerns about a under-regulated, out-of-control sort of, or perception of an under-regulated, out-of-control tech sector without actually doing anything to um, address the, the overarching story, which is the role of the state in surveillance and facial mm. recognition, etc. I mean, I think I have and probably wildly unfairly uh, compared uh, this Chinese move uh, with that of Facebook in terms of facial recognition. So Facebook have made a move that should be welcome in the sense that they're moving away from facial recognition. They've made a promise to delete all of the, the libraries that they've created. And that feels like a timely sop, if you like, to, to regulators and opinion formers that doesn't actually go anything, do anything to the fundamentals of the Facebook business, but, but makes a gesture, if you like. And it kind of feels like, as I say, wildly unfairly, you know, the Chinese government and Facebook are maybe addressing privacy issues in a similar way, um, without undermining their core propositions. As we're really getting into uh, speaking about regulation here, do you think that there's a case to be made at all for overregulation? Uh, for example, I know Dominic Cummings has uh, sometimes spoken about, oh, we one of the benefits of Brexit is that we can diverge away from these ridiculous laws like GDPR, which are too restrictive and uh, perhaps move more towards um, some of the slightly looser data protection laws that, for example, exist in, in the USA. Mm. Does he have a point, or is this just more Tory-style dogma that all regulation is bad? 
and businesses should be free to do whatever they want. <laughs> uh, you put it so well, David. It's almost <laughs> you're more British than the British. Um, he has a limited point. I mean, I think the actual wording was um, GDPR is an idiotic law. Um, and he went on to somewhat over egg his argument by suggesting that the EU had a hatred of technology and innovation uh, as opposed to the freewheeling Anglo-Saxon nations of the UK and USA, etc. Um Yes, I would say that's largely ideologically driven. I think there's a just an obsession with um, deregulation. Every regulation is presented as red tape, as a barrier to innovation, as a, a weight upon business, if you like. And that's as true of health and safety law as it is of data protection law. So I think there's a ide- overarching ideological uh, sort of agenda there. Um, but despite being a, a very enthusiastic sort of champion of GDPR, indeed, I act as uh, data protection officer at Profusion. Um, you know, I'm, I almost hesitate to say that there are areas where it does feel um, like too much of a, a bureaucratic rubber stamping, form filling sort of exercise. So I think there are ways to, mm. to streamline GDPR. It's a question of who do you trust to do that streamlining and what are their fundamental motivations? Um so, yeah, I mean, the UK government is just there's a consultation just closing at the moment in terms of um, how do we take advantage of our post EU, uh, post Brexit uh, sort of situation. And there's some discussion of diluting some of the requirements for GDPR. Um, and I was quite surprised, to be honest, that um, a network that I part, the data protection network that I uh, participate in, which is a group of UK based uh, data protection officers, almost half of them welcomed the UK government's consultation mm. uh, to ease some of the bureaucratic sort of yeah. considerations. Well, as long as the data bananas have the right curvature, I think we're in good shape. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> I'm wondering about the reverse question. So, Instead of thinking of regulation as being this thing that's hindering innovation and progress, is there an argument to be made for the idea that actually if we eliminate some of this chaos, if we create a a society where there's a bit more trust around how data is going to be used, is that a useful foundation for greater innovation? What a great thought, Henrik. Um, yeah, I think there definitely is. And I think um, there's probably two levels to that. So I guess from a, uh, if we take a sort of micro sort of level in terms of individual businesses, um, you know, is GDPR and similar data protection sort of regimes and regulations, is it a barrier to, to business as usual and to business innovation um, as per the conservative ideology we were sort of uh, discussing um, well, the contrast is presented by the likes of Cisco, who've done some uh, quite regular research since GDPR went live. Uh, and what they have been um, seeing is that companies are, as you rightly say, significantly benefiting from the from the data hygiene that GDPR sort of mandates. So, you know, you know better than than me and, and better than most people how damaging sort of dirty data is or poor quality data mm. is. Um, and one of the great advantages of GDPR is sort of shining a light on the, on the quality of your data holdings, making sure mm. that your customer data is accurate, up to date, uh, you know, all of those things. So data quality then becomes, you know, good data then becomes the foundation for, for, for the outputs of the organization. So it's, and it's, support. Sorry. it's not just nerds like us telling people to clean up their data. It's also the nanny state giving you <laughs> a little boost. <laughs> Yeah. And then, um, you know, part of that, then companies, um, if you're going to support subject access requests, et cetera, then you need to have a single customer view by which we mean pulling together all of the different sources of customer data, your interactions with customer service, your interactions with customer sales, your response to marketing, et cetera, et cetera, uh, into one Beautiful. single uh, sort of perspective that gives you, that empowers your employees to provide a better service, employers you, empowers your marketers to personalize their communication. Uh, so yes, there absolutely is uh, real um, tangible business benefits uh, from uh, compliance, if you like. Um, but also, yeah, just a, a renewed appreciation. I would encourage people to look at the sort of Cisco research for the flip side of that. And then I guess in terms of the, the bigger picture, yes, there is a real danger of uh, a loss of sort of confidence and trust and a 
you know, particularly, you know, it feels like we live in very sort of populist times and the, the, the dangers of a knee jerk overreaction to the turbulence in the digital market. Uh, I sort of really encouraged, um, I'm sure both of you are familiar with an economist called Carletta, Carlotta Perez, who's a Venezuelan. Um, and she's written a lot about the long cycles of economic history. Um, and, you know, we're still working, in her opinion, we're only working our way through the, the Internet age, if you like, which she dates back to mm. 1971. Um, in, in, in her interpretation, we're now at a turning point, which is why we've got all of this friction going on and all of this concerns about AI and privacy mm. and data determinism and surveillance and all of that is all part of this social conversation that's societal conversation that's finally happening that you know i've kind of been shouting about for the last 15 years uh, often in empty rooms to myself uh, but finally we're having a big societal conversation about our relationship with data the digital economy the future of ai etc um, and at a time when it feels like there's limited sort of hope out there you know her message is that these are incredibly long cycles this incredibly powerful suite of technologies and possibilities and she you know it urges us to consider the the sunlit uplands that we will emerge into you know post the turning point where we'll finally start yeah Yeah, when we'll finally start to see the rewards of this and it's part of that thing that we overestimate the sort of short-term impacts we underestimate the longer-term impacts so if we can sustain trust and confidence if we can have a fruitful societal sort of dialogue and discussion if we can get the right checks and balances no we don't want overweening regulation that does stifle innovation we need to find the balance uh, we do need to protect the vulnerable we do need to empower people as consumers we're all educated to be consumers uh, but yes there is a um, a new Jerusalem on the on the other side uh, hopefully yeah under and our actually, ai overlords yeah good yeah and actually um just thinking about consumer attitudes at the moment and the, the sort of complexity of the situation uh, a research a, a london-based uh, research agency that um, i've known for a long time and have a you know, very high opinion of i remember them publishing some research maybe five years ago with the striking title of post-digital consumers uh, and the message to to, to business <laughs> was uh that uk consumers they, they get it. They're over it. They, they know it. They, you know, they understand digital. They've absorbed it into their lives. They've got their messaging platforms, their social media. They've got a pretty good handle on what you should be doing with their data. And they're they incredibly disaffected. Uh, you know, they think. As a, a purely from a consumer point of view, in terms of you should be offering a seamless service across channels. If I'm talking to you yeah. by email, by mobile, by PC, etc. The cars should fly also. And, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> they, they, downhill. The trip should be downhill both ways. Without being too satirical, they, to your earlier point, uh, Henrik, about the transparency of the value exchange, the argument they were making was that consumers get it. Uh, they understand what they should be receiving in return for the data that they are sharing. And businesses need to get with the program, if you like, uh, and speed up. Um, and start delivering these omnichannel experiences, start delivering the benefits of data sharing. Um, you know, otherwise, you know, customers will go elsewhere where they can see that uh, sort of value exchange more tangibly realized. So I think that's quite a provocative sort of approach that consumers are, or a certain tranche of consumers are significantly ahead of businesses and actually disappointed in how the majority of businesses are leveraging data. And that's not surprise news to people at Profusion like yourself, Henrik. Um, you know, we're very much um, in the front line of helping businesses to extract value from their data. You know, it's the number one frustration out there today across the business community. A lot of investment in data infrastructure, data teams, data scientists and limited returns on that sort of investment that's really interesting that, that there's that you know expectation now that hey, you must use my data uh, otherwise i'm not actually getting enough mm. this value yeah. exchange yeah. all right so next let's move on to the oracle <laughs> i was dreading this so, bit i have to say <laughs> are we playing the the music here or <laughs> It's one of the first, if not the first, transcribed pieces of music in history. So you have a lot to live up to here. <laughs> right. So the Oracle is where we think about the world 100 years from now. And since today we've been speaking about extracting value from data and data protection and data privacy, 
the question is really, what would you like to know about the world a hundred years from now regarding how we extract value from data and what your predictions would be? Hmm. What a fine question, Henrik. I must say that... Um... Yeah, so my my primary uh, sort of reference point for, you know, 100 years time, uh, especially given sort of recent events, uh, would be the state of the climate, uh, the state of the planet uh, and the state of human society as a, as a result of um, that uh, sort of context. But if I was to reluctantly be forced to stick to the day job, and I guess that's one of my problems is that I, I rarely stay focused on one particular job, <laughs> um, then I would be fascinated by uh, the evolution of AI uh, between now and uh, 100 years time. You and I, Henrik, over the years, we've had a few conversations about the prospects for artificial general intelligence uh, or indeed the singularity, which I know you welcome and relish with open arms. Um <laughs> And I guess, uh, yeah, everyone in this space will be fascinated to see where that takes us. Uh, from a more uh, focused on today's conversation sort of perspective, I really hope we will see um, a mature uh, sort of information architecture uh, that allows us as individuals to, to manage the data that we share with different organizations as and when we choose to do so, mm. that we all have the opportunity to differentiate our relationships with different types of service providers in the public and the private sector, that we have differential permissions for data sharing, and that this isn't too much of a burden on the individual, that we leverage AI and we leverage um, the, the latest sort of technologies and possibilities to make that relatively painless for the individual uh, that companies and organizations are therefore held to, to standards within that uh, but fundamentally that we have got that sense of choice and control do you think it's all going to be on blockchain or do you think the other direction people are going to be like what what is this data privacy people are talking about i can't even understand the concept <laughs> I uh, suspect it's more likely to be the lad latter. I think, um, you know, a lot of people say that in the face of this, the only response is radical transparency, um, barring a, as David Brin again, barring a little t private corner where you can go to the toilet. Uh, but most people push back from that and they want the transparency for other people. Um, in terms of blockchain, uh, at this moment in time, I'm very suspicious of technological mm -hmm. solutions mm -hmm. to technological problems. Uh, I think it's much more about changing mindsets and attitudes and cultures. I think I've seen too much within the, the, the media and marketing industry that uh demonstrates a real lack of respect uh for the for the people behind the data uh that's always had a real thirst mm. for for exploiting uh sort of data um and you know what really unsettles people let's be honest is the fact that you know uh people who think they are smarter than the average person shall we say are making inferences about them where they have no possible opportunity to contextualize those sort of data points mm. um every focus Power group tells you issue. yeah yeah, inequality. It plays into the, it plays into a lot of things that people are concerned about. But all right, I'm starting new conversations. We're supposed to be closing boxes here. Sorry. All right. So next, uh, we have a tune that David recorded. Ooh. Um, yeah. Which is for our correlation game. Let's hear the recording now. Is it? Is it correlation? Uh, So that explains the game, right? <laughs> <laughs> so in this game, in case it wasn't clear, um, we're trying to guess a correlation between two variables. And so your job, Michael, is to just guess a number between negative uh, one and one, depending on how your gut instinct tells you that these two things should be related to each other or not. And... Uh, today's two variables are the freedom to make life choices versus log GDP per capita. And and just to clarify before he before he gets it, so we're talking about cross country data in the year 2021, and they asked yes. people how free do they feel to make life choices, some sort of scale from one to ten, something like that. Yeah, and we're talking about the Pearson's correlation, the one that I mentioned before. So that's that's your metric. It's got to be between negative one and positive one. 
And I, I'm going to throw in, I want you to give me a, also a, a 90% confidence interval on your, on your guess. <laughs> Might be pushing me too far. Yeah, we want core, we want guests that are well calibrated or we want to try to calibrate our guests. Uh, well, instinctively, you, you said good instincts, Henrik. Uh, I would have thought there is a positive correlation between a sense of freedom of choice uh, and our wealth. Of course, in the absence of wealth, your choices are pretty constrained by the need to eat and have shelter and all of that. Uh, so I'm going to go positive correlation. How positive am I going to go? I'm quite intimidated by your previous guest who had a really accurate sort of guess. I know. Um, so I'm going to go, I guess I should just go all in really, shouldn't I? I'm going to go 0.8 positively correlated. Wait, wait 90% confidence intervals on that? You, you want to do this so that 90% of the time your confidence interval, well, you know how this works. You want 90% of the time when you're asked statements like this, this range will get it right on the nose. Or it'll be within this range and no more. 0.6 to 1. Okay. Fair enough. And the answer is... (laughs) (laughs) Ah, 0.37. Yeah, so it's a relatively weak correlation. Definitely positive. direction, right? But, but yeah, it's it's, it's a little bit... You have to go on nine more podcasts and answer questions like these to be well calibrated. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Thanks, guys. That's been a yeah, really interesting uh, sort of conversation. Um, kind of thought-provoking. You're right, David, to sort of probe away as to why do so many people feel so strongly about uh, the sort of data space and their privacy in, in a digital context in a way that maybe they don't elsewhere. Uh, and I think it is, you know, this sense of kind of the little guy, aren't you, in the midst of this sort of digital ecosystem. Uh, we, we're getting to grips with a, a power imbalance. We're seeing obscene revenues and wealth being generated by these uh, g- global behemoths. We're, we're acutely conscious that in some way we are fueling that. We're seeing that happening in parallel with unprecedented inequality in many uh, leading uh, sort of nations. Um, and yeah, uh, people are feeling squeezed in, in any number of sort of ways, financially, socially, all sorts of sort of aspects. So, uh, watch this space. Hopefully in line with Carlotta Perez, you know, we're in this turning point. We're having this societal conversation. It's long overdue. Uh, so as you said, David, let's look forward to a, to a new Jerusalem on the other side of this uh, period of transition. But yeah, thanks guys. It's been really interesting. Thanks a lot. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Michael. And that's a wrap for today's show. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at hello at profusion.com or on Twitter at PRFSN. Thanks for now. Bye.